It is the 11 Dubcast. I'm Johnny. He's Andy. Let's get right into it. There are big things going on with regards to the NCAA, the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, best place to get um, cafeteria food, by the way, in Washington, D.C. I'll just throw that out there. Um, <laughs> but aside, putting that aside, putting the $8 uh, half rack of ribs that I got from the Supreme Court cafeteria a few years ago that I still refuse to shut up about, um, the Supreme Court basically had a huge just blow to the solar plexus of the NCAA's model on amateurism uh, today. They basically they were ruling in Olson versus the NCAA talking about um, the limit that the NCAA was putting on educated uh, education related benefits and whatnot and basically said uh, there really are no limits. And this is a nine to zero decision which some people actually, you might be surprised, that's actually the most common decision in Supreme Court cases. A lot of people think, okay, we've got the super divided Supreme Court. Nine to zero is actually the most common by a pretty wide margin. Um, and this is one of those. And if you had been following the oral arguments of this case, probably not a big shock that this is how it, it, it all shook out. Uh, Justice Gorsuch had the uh, majority opinion, the, the large opinion that you know people were signing on to. Um, and then Justice Kavanaugh wrote a separate opinion to concur, but then also add on to that. What is, we'll get into a little bit more of the details here, Andy, but what are your initial thoughts, reactions to this uh, news? I liked one of the national pundits and I, I'd have to go back and see which one it was. I wish I'd written it down to give them credit, but the, uh, the comment was something like, you know, once again, the NCAA is the last to know that no one likes them. Then, <laughs> <laughs> you know, for, yeah. for low, these many years, the NCAA has sort of relied on, you know, the institutions of society to prop up its business model that, that we would all just say, right. yes, this is, this is the way it should be. And it's good. And the courts would uphold it and no one would question. And, uh, now that's <laughs> not the case. And the court pretty well said, and I thought, uh, justice Kavanaugh came off the top rope in his opinion oh my said in any other, any other industry, this would be illegal, you know, right. in any other industry, this would never fly. So it ain't going to fly here anymore. And, uh, I, I mean, I think it was a pretty clear repudiation of, of amateurism such as it is that the NCAA, uh, you know, can't, can't do what it's been doing and telling schools, you can't do this or can't do that. And so on. I, I think it just continues. This is the latest in a series of things that have really chipped away and eroded at, I, I think the basic foundational, what the hell is the purpose of the NC2A? <laughs> uh, you know, frankly, like I, I, I think if I were on the board of governors or whatnot, I'd be sitting here, you know, wondering what exactly is it we're supposed to do here, right. uh, and really be thinking about the function outside of hosting a pretty big basketball tournament of this entity, because so much of what they hold dear, uh, or, or is held as a foundational kind of purpose for existing, it's just continued to be, be whittled away. I, I thought this decision was both not surprising um, but, but also let me say that the majority opinion, I, I thought maybe was even more of a declaration, uh, of how messed up the NCAA is than I expected. I, I was really surprised that, um, just how clear Kevin, I'll put it that what the NCAA is doing is not okay. Yeah. Essentially price fixing, uh, antitrust stuff. I mean, th those are not the words that you want to hear 
if you're Mark Hemmert in the NCAA, right? Like that's the the actual decision in this case is fairly narrow. And the the you know NCAA came out with a statement shortly after saying like, well, we still get to define what an educational benefit is. So really, it's not even that big of a deal. Yeah, the spin yes, machine you, coming there was pretty great. Yeah, like yes, you I guess you can try to do that, but you don't get to define the scope of that, which is kind of the whole point. Um, and then, uh, Mark Emmert said, even though the decision does not directly address name, image, and likeness, well, we're still committed to supporting NIL benefits. It's like, well, you have to be now, you don't really have a choice. So congratulations. Well, and, and the other thing he said there, you know, is in, in reference that, uh, uh, Justice Kavanaugh did mention that there are several different ways they could solve this conundrum. One mm. of which would be legislation and, right. and the NCAA latched on to that, uh, and it's pretty clear that Congress isn't going to act on this in the next, what, two weeks? No, not federal. Uh, no, absolutely it's, not. It's, it's not going to happen. So, you know, once again, I am astounded at how little leadership the NCAA has shown on this. I mean, I think their entire approach to the situation has been, hey, if we wait long enough without doing anything, it'll go away. Yeah. Like right. that seems to be their entire strategy is to hope that we'll all just forget about it in the morning. And what does this remind you of, right? Like to me, <laughs> to me, this smacks so much of what happened with the big 10 and COVID where it's like, let's just, 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 just don't talk to us about it. It's, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And hopefully it'll all work itself out and it's not going to work itself out. You have, I think 20 plus States at this point in time, uh, either having the pipeline or have already passed NIL legislation that goes into effect. Uh, I'm looking at the fake watch on my wrist two weeks. So you don't have the luxury of hoping that it all blows over. And I, I know I emphasized this last week, but it's just, it's hilarious to me that you've got a Supreme court that is fully aligned against your envisioning of whatever the hell amateurism is supposed to be. And you don't have a plan. You don't know how you're going to react to this. So I know that they've said that, okay, we'll have some kind of board you know, meeting. We'll get together and try to figure that they have, they have nothing and it's going to be the wild West. And now it's going to be the wild West with SCOTUS approval. So that's going to be fun. I, I want to go back. There's a really good website that I encourage people to check out. Uh, it's called Oye.org, O-Y-E-Z, which is, you know, the word that they use to open up uh, oral arguments in the Supreme court and whatnot. So they, Oye, Oye, and everybody comes in and all that good stuff. Um, so Oye.org, it's a, uh, I think the university of Chicago runs it, but what they do is they collect all the oral arguments, including the audio and the transcripts of these things going back decades and decades and decades. So you can check out the Roe v. Wade arguments. You can check out the Brown versus board of education arguments, the Obergefell v. Hodges. You can check out all that stuff if you're interested in it. I think it's, it's something to really kind of get into. It's, it's, it's very, very well curated you can even see you know which justice was saying what and all that kind of stuff uh shout out by the way to my uncle who is on that site for having argued in front of the Supreme court i think three or four times so that's that's fun stuff but there was a quote from this as i was going through the um the oral arguments transcript and this is from justice kagan who was talking to the representative from the ncaa who said uh, there's another way to think about what's going on here, and that's that schools are naturally competitors as to athletes have gotten have all gotten together in an organization, an organization that is undisputed market power, and they use that power to fix athletic salaries at extremely low levels, far lower than what the market would set if it were allowed to operate. So why shouldn't we think of it in just that kind of way that these are competitors all getting together with total market power fixing prices? And 
the lawyer for the NCAA, uh, Seth Waxman, and says, um, you know, we're not, this isn't some product, some differentiated product has just been created and we're now testing it. This is something that's 116 years old, blah, blah. And then Kagan interrupts and says, well, you can only write on history for so long. And then, he, then she says, I'll take you back to Justice Alito's question and the kind of payments that they're given. You know, a great deal has changed since the Board of Regents, let alone 100 years ago. So I guess it doesn't move me at all that much uh, that there's a history to this if what's going on now is that competitors as to labor are combining to fix prices. And then the lawyer for the NCAA says, so look, they're the, uh, the, uh, the way of rule. Uh, <laughs> and, then, and then there's a lot of crosstalk and it just kind of gets worse from there. So this did not go well during or arguments for the NCAA. Um, all of the justices, whatever their ideological bent, were pretty much aligned <laughs> against the NCAA. And again, when they start using terms like price fixing and antitrust and whatnot, and as you pointed out, Andy, Kavanaugh was like very, very, very strong in what he was saying against the NCAA, um, you know, that the NCAA business model will be flatly illegal in any other industry in the United States, that price fixing labor is price fixing labor. Um, it's not a huge decision on the face of it, but the implications are gigantic. And in two weeks, we're going to see just exactly how gigantic. So I'm kind yeah. of excited, honestly. And, and I should, uh, and I should correct myself. I said, uh, uh, I incorrectly cited that Kavanaugh wrote the majority opinion. Actually, Justice Gorsuch wrote right. the opinion for the majority. Uh, Kavanaugh wrote a concurrence. And, right. and I think, you know, while um, I always enjoy uh, reading Justice Gorsuch's opinions, I think it was the concurrence. Kavanaugh's concurrence was the one that really uh, brought the heat. And if you don't uh, find yourself reading um, Supreme Court opinions often, the, the Kavanaugh opinions want to go back and reread just because, it, especially if you're someone who enjoys people dunking on the NCAA, uh, <laughs> he seemed to take great pleasure in doing it this time. Uh, and, and there was a, you know, there was quite a lot of social media um, dunking on the NCAA to the, to the tune of, you know, in, in a polarized society that we live in, when you get unanimous, uh, yeah. you know, get unanimous agreement that the NCAA done screwed up, <laughs> that's a sign, you know, so. Right. Yeah, I love I love the lines uh, from from Gorsuch or from uh, Kavanaugh's uh, concurrence where he says like law firms cannot conspire to cabin lawyers' salaries in the name of providing legal service out of a quote love of the law. <laughs> yeah. Hospitals hospitals cannot agree to cap nurses' income in order to create a quote pure form of helping the sick. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Which is an excellent point, um, and it's you know. The argument really is, and, and this is what it boils down to. And I've, I've talked to people who are very against paying players and expanding their benefits and whatnot. And really what it goes down to is like, I don't want college athletics to look like this because that's not the college athletics that I grew up with. I think it's a dilution of what I love about college sports. And I, on a visceral level, on a personal level, I understand that. On a legal level, it is nonsensical. And that's exactly what the Supreme Court of the United States said today, which is that you can, this is not a legal theory. That your feeling about, you know, how people understand or like college sports does not per, you know, does not allow you to price fix the rate at which an athlete gets paid for what they're doing. Uh, especially when so much money is involved. Um, mm -hmm. If there was no money involved, that probably wouldn't be as big an issue. And, and maybe they come out on a, you know, a different side on this, 
but given the hundreds of millions of dollars that Ohio State alone generates from the students' labor, from the student athletes' labor, I think it's a different conversation. Yeah, and I think the other the other part of it is, you know, it's, uh, there's this idea of the markets need to be able to work, and and as sure. it is now, because the NCAA is in essence, uh, you know, engaged in the most massive example of antitrust. <laughs> action that uh you know you probably touches the life of of an average um sports fan it's 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 all the more striking because the market should be able to say hey and and maybe some employers quote unquote you know universities will say hey here's what we're willing to pay and that is scholarship room and board Mm -hmm. period but others ohio state alabama etc will say hey you know here are some other benefits that can come from in that you know, all of these other educational benefits that we were the justices were saying the NCAA could not, uh, you know, prohibit. Right. So yeah, it's it, it, athletics is changing. It's going to change. We can have feelings about that, but I think the court was pretty clear that just because we have feelings about it doesn't mean the law doesn't apply. Right. And the other thing though, and I understand people's concern on this is, is how does this change college athletics long-term? And I have no clue. I don't know. <laughs> I know that places like Ohio State and USC or Stanford or Texas or whatever with these gigantic athletic departments will probably be fine. I mean, they'll, they'll figure out a way to adjust and, and do what they need to do. For a lot of these athletic departments that operate in the red and require massive student subsidies to function, and, and seriously, I mean, there are athletic departments that, you know, two-thirds of their revenue come directly from student payments, right? That they take on a yearly basis. I don't know what's going to happen to them. I don't know how that they're going to try to figure that out because there's no way that a place that takes, you know, millions of dollars from their students to pay their student athletes and their coaches can, can really, you know, they're not getting blood from a stone. So maybe that means the end of a lot of athletic departments. I don't know that that seems extreme. That seems you know, crazy when we're talking about this arms race, but it might be a reality. And I think we're going to have to, as, as college sports fans kind of get comfortable with the idea of change, because this is a big part of the changing landscape of college sports. And it might mean that a lot of the assumptions that we've had that a place like, you know, (laughs) San Jose state, or Sam Houston State, or any other place that begins with an S and ends with State, um, San Diego State, <laughs> that they get to keep their athletic departments functioning as the way they they had been, and that they get to keep football programs afloat, for example, that lose money despite being the most financially burdensome, you know, athletic program. I don't know. I don't know that that's going to be the case necessarily. So a lot's going to change. It's going to look a lot different, but as you said, I mean, the law is the law, right? Like this is the justices are aligned and you're going to see a lot more of these kind of landscape shifting things in the future, because this opens the door for a lot of, you know, you're using the language of antitrust and price fixing and stuff like that. That opens the door for a lot more in terms of lawsuits and, you know, what players feel that they should be compensated, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I'm, I'm with you. I don't know what the future holds, but one of the thing I, one of the things I think about, you know, and I, maybe I tend to approach these things like I want to be economist. Um, but, but, but I, I tend to think that what we'll see is that they, the haves and the have nots will approach us a little differently. And, and so the schools like Ohio state and Alabama will continue to operate the way they always have, they will seek to find a competitive advantage Mm -hmm. 
and and use it you know that to to attract more better talent uh that that's no different than what's happened now right but exactly I, but but i think you also see yeah you know, oh you you raise the question okay would some athletic departments close up shop would would they cut programs you know we started to see this a little bit so i i cover uh non-revenue sports wrestling in specific and stanford university a university that most of us would assume has plenty of money right you think of stanford you would definitely categorize stanford in the haves category of the haves and the have-nots yeah we're gonna do one, it's probably like 15 billion something crazy right? right and so they were going to do away with not only wrestling but several other non-revenue sports and the community revolted not just in this case the stanford community but uh, so so the wrestling community as an as an example jumped on this over the past season like crazy and their student athletes got involved. Um, uh, Stanford had a gentleman competing at the NCAA wrestling tournament for a national championship. He did not wear Stanford colors in the national finals. He wore a, a solid black singlet mm -hmm. uh, to draw attention to the situation. Stanford uh, reversed course. Hmm. They said, okay, uh, we're not cutting any programs. They were able to you know, raise the money through private donations, you know, extending their endowment, all these different things. But, but it caused change. So I think you might see some schools that do cut programs or say, Hey, there, yeah. the, we can't, we can't support this. Um, we want to, some of it will be, you know, prioritization. There will be uh, the, a look at, you know, of course, balancing title nine concerns. Okay. We have to cut some programs. So I would say if I were a fan of a male non-revenue sports team, um, you know, that maybe didn't, draw all that much attention or didn't have a big track record of national success, I might be thinking, huh, my program might be uh, on the way out the door, but I don't, but I don't think we have enough data to know how right. soon, when, if those type of things will be, will be reality. Uh, you, you don't, who knows how this all shakes out because maybe it doesn't, maybe it only really affects the other thing justice Kavanaugh talked about was the idea that maybe there will be a future where you have collective bargaining and mm -hmm. some format among the student athletes to try to sort this out. Because I think that's what a lot of people really question is when, when they say, Oh, I don't know if I'm in favor of this. It's because they have a hard time understanding how it might work in reality and in practice. Sure. Like, how do you, how do you go from Ohio state makes so much money in athletic revenues that we can pay our football coach more money than God. But um, we also had to cut, a boatload of low and mid-level departmental salaries due to COVID, you know? Right. So how do we, how do we pay the, the, the coaches all of this money and have, you know, all of the money for 47, you know, senior executive associate level athletic directors, but we can't figure out how to compensate the athletes. Like it's just, there's a lot of slack in those systems. It seems like, you know, as from the outside looking in. And, and I think some of this might force, um, programs to figure that stuff out. What do you really value? Because clearly having the talent makes a difference. So what does it cost to have the talent? NIL, I think is going to be a, a sea change in that regard, because programs are definitely going to leverage that. We're already seeing the kind of the first steps in that direction of leveraging that and how we help the athletes capitalize on their brand and their association with a large brand like Ohio state. Yeah. And you know what? I actually, and I mean, all of this kind of goes back to the idea that amateurism is now, I think, officially dead. I mean, if it hadn't been dead for a while, it's, I think that's the nail in the coffin. But 
I almost feel when you talk about unionization or, or you know collective bargaining, to me, for the smaller schools and athletic departments, that that almost would be like an, an advantage for them to have some kind of baseline that they can they can draw from. And then I don't know what functionally that looks like when you've got you know athletes rotating every four to six years, right? That's it's really difficult to try to maintain something like that. But um, yeah, I I think there's a lot of opportunities to not go crazy hog wild there there are things that can be done to yes they'll change but to create some kind of equilibrium between athletes and schools that isn't so completely one-sided and yeah i mean that's gonna that's gonna require change and maybe getting rid of some programs or whatnot but maybe not um so we're gonna have to see how this plays out and we're really (laughs) it's gonna be really quick because you've already got nil nil stuff coming out um you're gonna have to deal with this in the near future it's just it's gonna be very interesting um but yeah amateurism is dead and somebody actually mentioned i I think this is a really great point um and i kind of alluded to it a little bit when we were talking about the the transcript and the oral arguments ncaa couldn't even tell the supreme court what amateurism is right like buffalo buckeye in our uh, in our comment thread in our um supreme court uh article was like look you know if it's so important to the ncaa they should have tried to define it <laughs> they should have said exactly what amateurism is so the supreme court knows what they were trying to protect yeah. and the ncaa just couldn't they couldn't do it beyond these abstract ideas beyond like well you know it's for the love of the game or you know 116 <laughs> years of tradition great it supreme court does not care it doesn't matter no, no. um and not a thing Right. And the thing is, you know, on a fan level, of course, it's a thing, right? Like, of of course, you have a certain love or adherence to, you know, the roar of the crowd or the way the Rose Bowl looks in the sunset and Pasadena Mountains and all that. But you can't quantify it. And a player, an athlete says, okay, well, I get X, Y and Z from the university. I can definitely quantify that. They're not they're making a very specific amount of money. They certainly can quantify that we've got to come up with some kind of way to make sure that this, this is a more equal playing field that doesn't involve me having to accept, you know, the love of the game (laughs) to make up the remainder of that balance. That's really what that's about. Uh, Because that's what the NCAA has been asking student athletes to do is to say, okay, well, you know, we're not paying you like an employee, but damn it. If it isn't great to be a Buckeye. (laughs) (laughs) that's that's true to an extent and i can't i can't take that away from people personally but uh in your pocketbook that's that's a different thing so this is to me really fascinating and there's going to be more of it um and i do think it's significant that the uh, supreme court was all in alignment against the ncaa which is a hilarious thing to say because they were completely i don't know how you could be blindsided this is not a surprise decision i don't think anybody expected the ncaa to win this thing uh, but they just seem unprepared as they have seen, you know, seemed uh, for the past several years on basically every everything. So that's fine. Um, so that's, that'll be interesting. We'll keep an eye on that. Another thing I want to talk about real briefly before we get into uh, some ask us anything. So we got some really great ask us anything this week. Olympics are coming up. And as you know, we can talk about the Olympics all day and pros and cons. And in Japan, there's obviously a lot of controversy there. A lot of the people there are not super stoked about it. I still love the Olympics as a concept and former Ohio state track athlete, Christina Clemens is going uh, the hundred meter hurdles, which is just the hurdles in general is just a crazy event. I don't know how people are able to do that. 
Um, and then Hunter Armstrong, obviously, in the pool, in the backstroke, the Hunter back, uh, which is super sweet because there's a lot of really cool Ohio State history there. We're former Ohio State swimmers in the 1940s and 50s, won gold medals and dominated the world and in, in those events so i'm i'm excited for this i think that's a lot of fun to see buckeyes in the olympics that's really cool i love the olympics and and it goes back to i mean i i think i might feel differently about it if i was growing up now or coming up of of age and kind of this modern era of television and uh you know digital communications in general but you know when you and i were growing up the olympics was like appointment viewing right so we, oh yeah we, we weren't streaming it 24 seven, you know, online, or we didn't have, I mean, we had, you know, whatever channels we could get out of Cincinnati, Dayton and Columbus at our house. That's what we had to watch. <laughs> right. So, you know, it was, it was one of those things that dad got home from work. We had supper and we're watching the Olympics, you know, so in, in winter or summer, you know, it didn't matter. We watched all, of course, you know, we're rooting for team USA. Like this was, you know, the uh, eternal battle of good versus evil. And of course, as a child of the cold war, like we, we really leaned hard into that because, you know, it was, it, it was the U S versus the world, baby. Um, and, and so I just have this great nostalgia for the Olympics. Uh, it's definitely problematic. You know, I, I always find fascinating. You'll find these articles online that you know, usually like it's some photo essay of Sochi as an example, and all of the abandoned, Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. Buildings and facilities and, you know, did it was was it a net positive or a net negative for the host city state country uh, economically? You know, and it seems like more often than not, it's uh, it was a net negative. And so so there's some problems in that regard. Uh, but by and large, I still enjoy the spectacle. I love the idea kind of like is what you said, the 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 concept of the Olympics. I, I love that. Um and I love that you would, you have these storylines that either involve Ohio state, either current or former uh, Kyle Snyder, of course, an alumnus of our fine university will be uh, fighting for a shot at a second gold medal. So mm -hmm. rooting for him and I hope uh, uh, viewers will be as well, but then having current athletes in the Olympics, I think is always fun too. Yeah. And you know, here's the thing when I was a kid, right? Like I was, I swam a lot. I started swimming like on swim teams competitively when I was maybe six or seven years old. Yeah. I mean, you and, could have been an Olympian. <laughs> yeah. If I were any good. Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> um, but what I didn't was, get to... what was your, what was your best event? What was, your to other what was your favorite event? Maybe let me back up that way. Yeah, I don't, I mean, best would imply I was any good. Uh, I really, honest to God, I really enjoyed backstroke. I, I in part because I was actually good at that. I, I was pretty decent at backstroke um, for most of the time that I was swimming. I wasn't very good at the turns and that kind of bit me in the ass the older I got because you got to do more turns. Um, but I really did enjoy backstroke because it's, it's just a different way of doing it. So when Hunter Armstrong, you know, ended up getting uh, on the Olympic team in the hundred meter backstroke, I'm like, Oh man, that's my dude. And when I was a kid growing up, you know, you don't get to see these uh, sports and events very often on TV, right? The Olympics are really your only time to take that kind of stuff in. If you're big into judo, right? How, when, when else are you going to watch judo, right? When you're in the eighties or nineties, you're only going to be able to watch it during the Olympics. Um, so I think that's part of why it holds kind of a special place in my heart because I loved watching competitive swimming. I, I was like, Oh man, I was right there with the swimmers. I know exactly what they're going through and all that stuff, but I could only watch it every four years. So I would get super hyped for it. 
Um, Hunter Armstrong, by the way, is participating in the 100 meter backstroke, which not only has Ohio State swimmers dominated in, right? Um, uh, Yoshi uh, Oyakawa won gold in that event uh, in the 1950s from Ohio State, uh, Olympic swimmer from Hawaii uh, who swam for the Buckeyes. Um, but the American men have an incredible streak of dominance in uh, backstroke in general, both 100 meter and 200 meter. There's been 12 medals 12 gold medals given out since 1996 the united states has won all of those nice um so he joins a really strong legacy of uh, american backstrokers and in in those events and um it's going to be really fun i and by the way so ryan murphy who is the undisputed like king of the backstroke right now uh he was hunter armstrong may have swam you know swam the best race of his life to get to the position where he's at, but he was right there with Ryan Murphy. If he's able to replicate that, mm-hmm. um, you might see a Buckeye on the podium um, in uh, in a few weeks here. So I'm excited about that too, because he, he has a very realistic shot of getting a medal and that'll be a lot of fun to watch. Um, and then of course, you know, you don't want to leave out, uh, you know, former Buckeyes as well. Christina Clemens, I, I watched uh, her trial run when she was at the trials uh, for the, um, the uh, track and field uh you know trials where they're all you know deciding who's gonna be on the team and whatnot and it baffles me what some of these track and field athletes are able to do i saw the world record and shot put that was fun as hell to watch that was cool um you know i watched the steeple chase where it's like okay <laughs> you run through water for half the race you're gonna put it we're just gonna put this random hurdle in the middle you're talking of about the one with the horses yeah oh <laughs> that one's fun too um but the the hurdles in general are just the mentality that you have to have for it the i mean you actually look at those olympic size hurdles like how high they are the i don't know i just love watching the athleticism involved it's it's really a cool thing to watch and congratulations to both christina clemens hunter thompson you know any other ohio state or ohio affiliated athletes who are going to the olympics because it's just it's it's really cool to watch as just a fan of sports in general um so i'm excited I'm, i'm pumped for that i think that'll be really cool um, so we want to remind you that the Dubcast is sponsored by the Dry Goods Store at 11warriors.com, drygoods.11warriors.com, shirts, hats, stickers, all kinds of great stuff. Check it out. Let's do Ask Us Anything. You can ask us anything by sending us questions to dubcast at 11warriors.com, D-U-B-C-A-S-T at 11warriors.com. Let's start with this. We, we talked about this a little bit last week. Josh, wants to know uh with an expanded 12 team playoff they have to get rid of conference championship games and go back to regular season championships right at some point you're asking kids to play too many games in my opinion i don't think they're gonna get rid of championship games yeah i don't think so either it's too much too much of a money maker and it also helps them determine seating so i I think you're gonna keep that yeah conference championships games are, are here to stay i think one of the things that will be interesting will be to see if any of the conferences do away with their current division systems. Uh, so it, there's some discussion about, well, should we, and, and is it in our best interest as a conference to just have our number one and number two go at it in a conference mm-hmm. championship game instead of having this East and West, these kind of, you know, faux uh, divisions, you know, faux geographical divisions or uh, going back to the legends and leaders debacle and, <laughs> Yeah, you know, so and I don't know that I have a strongly held opinion on that. Part of me says don't do it because it's interesting. You wouldn't necessarily see Ohio State versus Northwestern 
uh, in a one V two kind of concept, right. you know? So, so there's a part of me that says, you know, it's good to have some, some different matchups, although Ohio state versus Wisconsin would be the mode of this particular data set. Right. So we're, we're likely, you're likely to continue to see those games happen more often. So maybe it's not giving you different games just to see one V two. But, but yeah, I, I totally concur that you're going to see those conference championships games stay just too much money involved for one thing. And, and then for another, it just, it, it, it makes too much sense with regard to seeding. And, and then we talked about this, I think last week, didn't we, that it's only too many games for one team, for two teams, right? right? It's only too many games for two teams. Yeah. In Everybody, general, I would like to see fewer games, but I don't think that's going to be a obstacle. going. Yeah. Through. I would not like to see fewer games because I enjoy college football. I understand why people think maybe we should cap the number of games. Um, but I'm, I'm okay with it because it, it, it affects a vanishingly small number of players out of the hole. So I don't think we right. need to change the system because two teams are going to play an extra game. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and like you said, I mean, if those games are profitable, then there's no way in hell they're getting rid of them. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> Not going to happen. <laughs> so, yeah. So I, I, yeah, I, I think there's too many games because I just, I, I think it dilutes the, you know, we, there's just too many crappy weeks, but yeah, um, but, the, but and, and I think, you know, there again, the issue is not that there are too many games. It's that we need to somehow figure out how to incentivize better scheduling. Right. Exactly. Um, so, yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, the conference championships, that's the other thing. They've been wildly successful in terms of people tuning in and the excitement. I'm just, I would be kind of sad if Ohio state didn't have that kind of at the end of the year. I, I know, I don't know that I was like super against it, but I was kind of ambivalent because I did like the idea of the mission game being the last game. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I didn't really love the idea of potentially, you know, the way they were thinking about how working out their divisions, like, Oh, you're going to play them twice. And early. like, no, okay. That's stupid. They didn't end up doing that. So that's fine. Um, but yeah, they're here to stay. And I think that'll continue to be part of the equation. Um, all right. This next question here, this is a good existential question. This is, uh, I really enjoy this a lot. And I've been thinking about it actually for the past few days. Uh, define Midwesterness. And does Ohio have its own brand of being Midwestern? Does it even vary throughout the state? Yeah, it's that. So that's very, that's a very good question. And I love how you, Johnny have access to these questions for days and then uh, just toss <laughs> just them out of the them Yes, yes, yes. Uh, but that's okay. So you're getting my, so you, the listener are getting the benefit of my kind of like unvarnished, unrehearsed, you know, off the cuff response mm-hmm. to these. You are hearing these questions uh, for the first time as, as I am. So uh, defining Midwestern, uh, the reason I kind of chuckled at this when you were reading it uh, when, when I, when I started in radio, um, one of our major advertisers was, was a seed corn company, a national seed corn brand and a lot of their, so they define their advertising geography, if you will, um, as Eastern corn belt or Western corn belt. And by and large, um, the Eastern corn belt is kind of Iowa East and, and the Western corn belt would then then be sort of, you know, West of, of Iowa. Uh, but, but it was interesting because, you know, a lot of times Ohio was the last state on the buy, so to speak. And so when we say on the buy, you know, I worked at a radio station. So a buy an advertising buy was, uh, might be 
100 radio stations, might be 500 radio stations, but Ohio was sort of at the, the last state on the buy in the Eastern Corn Belt because farther east of us, yes, they still do raise corn and soybeans and other row crops, but Ohio is still a top, you know, 10, 15 type producer. Uh, Vermont is not, right? So if you're going to prioritize where you spend money advertising seed corn, you know, you would, you would advertise in Ohio more often than not. But if you had to make a decision uh, and cut a state, it was easier to cut Ohio than you would Indiana, Illinois, or Iowa. You know, those mm-hmm. are, those are big states. You don't want to cut those. So I've always thought of Ohio as Midwestern. Um, you know, some, some might say, oh, it's, you know, because because it doesn't feel like what you would say the Eastern seaboard, right? Well, how close oh, yeah. are I wouldn't we? No, put it's it in a, New England states or anything like that. No, it's definitely not New England. Definitely not New England. Like that's, that's pretty clear. Um, it's not East coast. Cause we're not, we're, we're at least what three states from a coast. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's not East coast. Uh, but what, what defines, so Midwest, middle west well w- what are we west of well i guess we're west of new england yeah. we're west of mountains closed you know so uh I, I do find ohio to be an interesting geographical beast there's another little piece of geographical trivia i'll throw out there with you uh i was talking some years ago because i work in in advertising uh to a person who does a lot of market research and demographics. And he said, Ohio is a really interesting state because Ohio state is the only state in the country that has more than 50% of its land mass that is still considered prime farm ground. That is as urban uh, as Ohio is. So in other words, you know, you look at states like Iowa, there's a lot of Iowa that ain't in a city, right? But right. you look at Ohio and not only, of course, you think of Cleveland, Columbus, Cincinnati, but you also have, Dayton and Toledo and mm-hmm. Youngstown and and you just go on and on and on there's 13 television DMAs or designated marketing areas in in the state of Ohio there's a boatload of TV markets in in Ohio and yet more than half the state's land mass is, is prime farm ground it's a really right. interesting state how do I does, does it have its own type of midwestern culture one of the things I always find interesting about the state is I've traveled around it over the years going to like county fairs and things I used to joke that I-70 might as well be the Mason-Dixon line. <laughs> you, you and I you and I grew up, you know, we're SOBs, uh-huh. Southern Ohio boys, um, if you're not if you're not keeping track of the lingo. So I I just laughed as a kid growing up, you know, you go in the high school parking lot and the number of trucks that are like jacked up, uh, you know, lift kits, massive wheels, rebel f- battle flag in the back window like we were in, you know, tuscaloosa or something right in and you know the y'alls and you know, just the southern <laughs> kind of faux southern drawl uh of so many of us in in my little rural farm town i kind of chuckle about it now but that's very different from you know the northern half of the state i, I don't know the unglaciated parts of of Ohio are very different from the flatlands, you know, up, up North. My wife laughs at me because I think I come from the Hills. <laughs> uh, I literally come from Hillsboro, right? Like it's in the name, but she's from West Virginia. By God, they got real mountains over there. That's right. <laughs> we, we were driving through Logan County the other day and I said, you'd never know this was the highest point in Ohio. Would you? Cause it's just kind of a gentle rise uh-huh. <laughs> and, and it gets really flat North of I 70. I don't know. There's a lot of waxing philosophical. That no, I don't but it's, a whole hell of it's a lot all good. Here. I appreciate that because it, 
we do tend to forget, I think sometimes as Ohioans, how many people live in this. I mean, 12 million people live here, right? Like I, I thought, I think about this all the time, right? We, we, a place like Ireland, right? Has an extremely cohesive, strong cultural identity, right? Like when you think of Ireland, there are very specific things that you think of and you, you know, the cultural touchstones that you're like, okay, I, I got this, this, and this. Ohio has like three and a half, four times as many people as the entire country of Ireland and a larger geographic space. And yet we don't have the same kind of like cultural understanding of the state of Ohio as we might for someplace like Ireland. I just find that really interesting. Um, the other thing that I would say, and I I've been trying to find this essay forever and it's been driving me crazy. Um, but I read an essay once where somebody was talking about that, um, you know, what Ohio is, what is being a Midwesterner is, all that stuff. And they were talking about um, the ability to read a room, right? The inability to read a room is the greatest cultural sin that you can commit in the Midwest. Hmm. And I think about that a lot. I, if it, if there's one thing that defines Midwestern interactions and whatnot, I, I really do think it's the ability to correctly read the room and how much that's emphasized in our, our interactions on a regular basis. Um, and it really does come up a lot. And what I would say specifically about Ohio, because you're right, Ohio is, is not quite Midwestern. It's, it's, it's in its own weird space. Um, I think Ohioans tend to understand that cultural norm and then weaponize it to be jerks. <laughs> There's a lot of people in this state who go, oh, I know what I'm supposed to say in this situation. I understand what everybody expects me to do. And I refuse to do it because you can't tell me what to do. And I, th I think that's what distinguishes a lot of Ohioans and especially like the large city area especially southwestern ohio where they understand that norm and that expectation and they refuse to abide by it and they get really bad when people ask them to and part of me really like i think it's hilarious and i admire it in a certain extent and sometimes i just put my head in my hands and i'm like please stop just have some chill have a little bit of just reading like no i refuse to read the room and I, I don't know. I just think that's kind of funny. So I'm going to keep trying to find that essay. If I can find it, I'll, I'll disseminate it. But speaking um, of essays, I'll, I'll put out the call here. I, I've got one that I read some years ago that I would love if somebody can find this or it remembers reading this. Um, it was, it was in, it was in the Ohio State University Alumni Magazine. This would have had to have been at some point in the last 20 years. Um, maybe 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 more like the last 16 i'll, I'll say post post 2004 because i would have been a i would have been a member of the alumni association and getting the magazine at this point so let's say post 2004 it was uh it was a columnist i don't think that it was necessarily the editor of the magazine writing the column and i feel like it was like one of those back page type columns, like toward the end of the magazine, like an inside back cover type of, you know, parting shot type column. Mm -hmm. And the gist of the, of the essay column op-ed was why Ohio state became, you know, you were using the Ireland example of like their cultural identity. I think in a lot of ways, Ohio state is our cultural identity. Now you're, oh, yeah. you're, you're Southwestern Ohio um, brethren would, would not necessarily jump on and co-sign <laughs> yeah, would this. not agree with that. But, but I think Ohio State in a lot of ways is our 
cultural touchstone and, and, and identity. It's our, our Blarney stone, if you will. Um, and the, the gist of this essay was how did that come to pass? And the, and the author was talking about, uh, you know, op- like the days before selective admissions and that there was this, you know, Ohio state was, was the land grant university. So everybody could go to Ohio state. We weren't doing selective admissions yet. Um, that, that, you know, because you had the, this football program that was so dominant under Woody Hayes that everyone, you know, could be a fan of the team it was Ohio's team. Uh, and it just went through and listed all of these things that, you know, in the fifties, sixties, and, and maybe early seventies sort of conspired to make Ohio state, this kind of monolithic type, um, you know, entity that it became Ohio's uh, university, if you will. And even though there are a boatload of universities in the state of Ohio and great universities in the state of Ohio. And, and I, I would love to, I, I really enjoyed that column and I would love to find it again. If anyone remembers reading that and specifically the discussion of like moving from open admissions to selective admissions and, and, and what that meant and how that sort of changed things and so on. I would love to find that. And you, you know, if you have that laying around or know where I can find it, hit us up in the comments or find me on Twitter. I would really love to reread that essay. It was really good. And I just have no idea how to go about tracking it down and finding it. So I'll let's, let's crowdsource this a bit. And yeah, you, you and the audience, if you can help me with this little research project, um, I'll, I'll see if we can't send you some stickers or something from the prize closet. I, Ooh, I, I would, I would, I would, I would love to, I would love to find, get my hands on this column again. Nice. Uh, by the way, real quick in a couple sentences here, I, I have not heard of this, Andy, but you might be aware. What are your thoughts on trail baloney? I love trail baloney. It's, 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 it's the only question that I, the only question that I've always kind of gotten hung up on is, is there a, is there a functional difference? And I should know this and I'm sorry, I don't. Uh, is there a functional difference between trail bologna and summer sausage? And I don't know that I know. Oh, I know what summer sausage is. I don't know what trail bologna is. It's a lot like summer sausage. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's processed meat, meat product in a rind. Um, I, I remember specifically as a kid, like we would go, so there was an Amish community, um, near us in Southeastern Ohio called, uh, it's like Wheat Ridge or, or Unity. I think we're the little towns, um, We'd go to uh, Raber's Saddle Shop, and Mr. Raber sold Red Wing work boots, and that they, they were cheaper there than they were in any of the shoe stores in Hillsboro. And those were the work shoes that my my dad still wears, low these many years later. And that uh, as a kid that I, I wore two Red Wings, and so we would go to Mr. Raber's and get um, Red Wing shoes. And then there was a little bakery. I I don't remember the name of the bakery, but you would get you know, your typical assortment of Amish baked goods, but there were always cheeses and, and trail bologna. So you would get a variety of Amish made cheeses and trail bologna. And it's just, I mean, it's, if you know what summer sausage is, trail bologna is like that. I feel like there's a textural difference, Mm -hmm. but I don't know if there's like a definitional difference. And so uh, if you, if you say I'm going to make summer sausage and this is the step that makes it summer sausage and not trail bologna, or if it is just the textural difference. I feel like summer sausage is a little coarser texture mm-hmm. than maybe trail bologna. Can you think about like a sausage patty versus a slice of bologna? So trail bologna is maybe more of that that soft, smooth, almost velvety type texture and mouthfeel versus yeah. sausage is going to be more crumbly, more coarse right. type of mouthfeel. Okay. But 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 you know what summer sausage is. So just think of a more 
bologna texture. I think I'd go with the summer sausage then over the. Oh, I love trail bologna. I, I loved it. It was great. Right. I haven't had it in years. I don't think. I, I, but you know. Fair enough. Uh, last question here. This is from a good friend, Alvin, and uh, he wants to know. So among the teams that are left in the NBA playoffs, we got the Suns, we got the Clippers, we've got the Hawks, we got the Bucks. Who are you rooting for? Who are you going for? Uh, is it bad at this point to say I could not care less? No, that's fine. That's a valid answer. That's okay. And I don't know if it's like no LeBron, you know, you're, so, you're so that's, I mean, God, this is terrible. That's exactly what I was going to say. When, <laughs> if LeBron were in, I'd probably be watching. It's been a long time since I have paid meaningful attention to the NBA. Um, I, I love college basketball. I enjoy very much watching, Ohio State play college basketball. I enjoy very much watching the NCAA tournament and try to watch as much as that as I can. And different years, I feel like almost every other season or so, I'll say, you know, this is the year I'm really going to watch the Cavs. I'm really going to watch the Lakers. Those would be the two teams I would be most likely to have a functional give a damn about. A, because we grew up loving the Lakers in in our household. Dad loved the Showtime Lakers. And the Cavs, obviously, because it's okay, our local team, so to speak. Um but yeah, I couldn't have told you. You rattled off those list of teams who were still in it. I I don't know if I could have told you that. Well, and the other the thing though, I just I I don't know. A lot of the big names are either hurt or they're out. I mean, like the Brooklyn Net. I mean, you got you know Durantula and you got Harden. They're not in it. Like Bucks took them out in Game Seven. So I for a lot of people, they may not be super invested in this. I I'm just I'm going to ride with the Hawks just because. Um, well, first of all, I'm going to ride with the Hawks because I. I think it's funny that they won and <laughs> they they came back and beat the 76ers uh which is unbelievably inept from them at the end of uh at the end of that series so I'm yeah because the sixers them. like i mean they were yeah trust the process they, right they trust up, the they process were... and blow huge leads uh <laughs> but they but they were up big right like earlier they yeah were games like I, I i mean i mean i seem to have noticed they were talking about this on the the social media but uh yeah, my, my I never yeah, I haven't watched a single NBA game this season. No, it's it's all good. I I just think it's funny because this is the uh I feel like this is almost like the Schadenfreude season for the NBA. And uh I you know, look, I I don't want to discount a pro or a, a team like uh, you know, the Suns for example, being able to win a championship that'd be kind of cool, but uh, I'm going to go with the Hawks. I, I think that's who I'm going to ride with alvin so i know alvin's a big nba guy and i'm excited to see maybe his, his response to that so we'll see who he's going for uh and we want all of you to continue sending those questions in. those were excellent thank you so much we'll continue answering them and, and breaking down all the crazy stuff that's going on in college sports these days holy crap uh but until then and until next week i'm johnny i'm andy and we'll see you then